we're super excited to have Adrian Troy, CEO of Streamlit, to be on our Open Source Startup Podcast. Just a really quick one line. What is Streamlit? It's the fastest way to build and share data apps. So thanks so much for coming on our podcast. Uh, yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Well, we want to start way back at the very beginning in the founding story. Where where did Streamlit come from and, and how did the project get started? Yeah. So I decided to take some time off. I had been a professor at Carnegie Mellon, uh, training the next generation of machine learning engineers, actually. I had created a series of quite well-known scientific discovery games like Foldit and Eterna that allowed millions of people to solve real scientific problems. I went to Google X. I worked on crazy science projects over there. I went to Zooks, which was a self-driving car company, got sold to Amazon, uh, worked on some crazy ML over there. And then I decided to take some time off. I wanted to write more code, to be honest. <laughs> and uh, it turns out that I wasn't really doing that in my life. So I, I started working on a bunch of fun projects and a lot of side things. You know, I think a lot of startup founders will resonate with this, especially in the incipient phases of sort of finding your project. You're working on a whole bunch of little side things. Many of them don't go anywhere. And the origin of Streamlit itself is that my good friend, Lucas Bywald, said, hey, Adrian, he's a lot like me. And he had founded a company and sold it. And then uh, he has an ML background. So he said, let's go into the woods and let's write code together in the woods. So we rented an Airbnb in the woods. It's beautiful, like little cabin, open up our laptops. We're just coding away, writing neural nets, all this kind of stuff. And this is a lot of things happened at that time that, or, you know, when you're coding neural nets, you can see all kinds of problems in the workflow. And in fact, two major companies came out of that weekend in some ways. One of them is Weights and Biases, which is Lucas's company, now one of the biggest companies in ML Infra of the past few years. And the other one is Dreamland, which of course is one of the one or two runaway open source successes of the past couple of years in data science infrastructure. So that's how it all started. And by the time that weekend was over, I already had a little bit of running Streamlit code, which I then developed. Eventually, more people started using and, and it grew and grew and grew from there. Awesome. We're going to need to know exactly what woodsies were that you ended up building in. There's some sort of magic there. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess there was an intention, right? Why do you actually even start a Streamlit in the first place? Right? You want to actually build mm -hmm. a way to build mm -hmm. data applications, sounds like, from mm -hmm. machine learning. Mm -hmm. And I guess that wasn't probably the most obvious place for every mm -hmm. machine learning founder where they start their companies off. Tell us what it was like the space you saw or the motivation you feel like this is actually going to be a big space to actually do a company. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, there was actually a little bit of a pivot in there. So when I first started Streamlit, the idea was I found it very hard to build just visualizations of machine learning and data science projects. Forget apps. It was really a solo project entirely. It was, I want to see what I'm doing. And so the original version of Streamlit was a personal project, and it was really a dev tool for me. And what happened was I started showing it to people because I didn't have a job. So I would just go to cafes with people in pre-pandemic, show them what I was working on. And lo and behold, a group of engineers at Uber started using Streamlit. At the time, I was just like, oh, my God, this is so cool. Like a bunch of ML engineers at Uber are using Streamlit. And now I see that. Actually, it was sort of maybe less the idea that was good and more the timing because this sort of notion that machine learning and data science were actually really important at companies and that you should pay lots of people a lot of money to work on these projects was really starting to happen. 
a couple of years ago. Of course, Uber is a very tech forward company, so they were kind of ahead of the curve. And for that group of people, they really found themselves landing in these big companies without a proper tool set. So it was maybe less how good my idea was and more just how impoverished the space was of data science and machine learning tools at the time that led them to start using Streamlit. But when people started to hear, oh, wow, there's a bunch of people at Uber using Streamlit, that's when investors started to like circle around and say, hey, this seems kind of interesting. Maybe we can put a little bit of money in. That's why I started to think about maybe there's actually a company here. My mom, of course, was like, you're spending too much time on this. Like, if you can't make a company, you should do something else. And so I eventually took some VC's money and we, we started working on it. So that's how the initial idea got started. It was really a dev tool for visualization. It was not an app building platform as such. And then in the first year, we actually did a little pivot and realized that it was really the app building aspect of this that was the most exciting. And so... I guess we're going to talk about the transition, of course, to the company, but staying on the project for now, timing was, you said it was a huge important thing, but timing is very hard to get right. And also when you're early, a lot of people kind of assume you just throw an open source project on the, on the web and things will just catch fire because your timing was right. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's true all the time. So maybe talk about like, what did you actually do to gain traction at early estate from a community point of view? Like what was the yeah. thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, you have prior experience also that helps you. So we'd love to learn more about that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's 100% true that you can't just put something on the web and then post it in R slash Python or something and then expect to become rich. (laughs) So one thing that I did, by the way, which I didn't know was a thing and is I talked to people who had successfully launched open source projects. And one of the weirdest meta learnings for me about being an entrepreneur is to realize that like one of the key skills is literally just find other people who've done what you did and talk to them about how they did it and just rinse and repeat. And I don't know why I never learned that in my years of being a grad student or professor or even working in companies, but it turns out that that is just such an important skill. So I talked to, for example, the guy who created CodeCove, which was this very super viral thing to, to do testing of your unit tests on your GitHub repos. And he gave me a ton of cool insights into how they did it. So I can share some of those, but to say that the meta learning is like, I would say if anyone starts a company in any industry, the number one thing to do is find the most similar person to you and ask them how they did it. It's so valuable. And people love talking about, you know, how they did it. So anyway, one thing that we did was we didn't just put something on GitHub and say, hey guys, this is pre, pre, pre alpha 1.0, blah, blah, blah. Just looking to see what you know, what you guys want to play with. I think there's this meme about the sort of lean startup mentality that launched the MVP as, you know, as early as possible. That idea can be taken too far, I think. You could also, obviously, it's a response to going too far in the other direction, which is waiting for everything to be perfect. But I'll say that what we did was we worked for a year on this project before launching it. And we everything was just word of mouth. It was the Uber guys. In that case, they were all guys. There was also guys and girls of, of all kinds of stripes who were, who were using it. And we were talking to them and calling them up and saying, hey, are you still using Streamlit? What are you doing? And so forth. And there was not a peep on the web about it at that point. You just had to know us if you wanted to use Streamlit. In the middle of that year-long period, which felt like a very long time, and I remember our investors calling us up being like, hey, what are you guys doing? Like, do you need, you know, <laughs> do you need, like, they were trying to give me like super basic advice. Like, do you need to set up milestones or something? What are, what are you actually doing with our money? In the middle of that year, we sort of gained conviction that, okay, 
this is what we're going to launch. And then at that point, it was not lean startup anymore. It was set a deadline, like five months in the future or something like that, and write down every single thing that we want to get done by that time and execute on it. And so that on day one, there was a beautiful medium post. There was, I think we even got some other like bloggers and stuff to write stuff about it. There was a really well done GitHub launch page, all the proper uh, you know, licenses and everything else. And, there, and, there, and we really believed in the software itself. And so the very first experience, the very first users, uh, public users had of GitHub was polished, actually. So minimal, but polished. Yeah, that's a really interesting bar because you're, you're talking about Steve, right? About CodeCov. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of learnings that I talked to him before. And I guess I'm curious because CodeCov was definitely a much more focused tool, right? You're, you're doing one particular thing really well. And I remember his strategy was, of course, going to open source projects, open pull yes. requests, right? You know? Yes, yeah, yeah, But yeah. it's not like you did that here because your community is everywhere. And mm-hmm. they don't even know such a thing exists. And you took word of mouth. Maybe tell us some more. Like, what did you learn from CodeCov? And maybe even like, you know, you, you said fold, from Folded, that actually was some key lessons to help you bootstrap the earlier community. Yeah. So one thing is that you really can't take the community for granted. The perspective is, to me, is that the community is a living thing. So it's not like, oh, my job is to... Uh, you know, <laughs> prepare a lot of nutrients and then put it all in the soil and then put it in the garden and then go back to my lab and work on nutrient science. It's every single flower has to be loved. The community is a living thing that you love <laughs> with your heart. And so from the very beginning, if people emailed us, we would email back and we were excited about it. And then we, you know, here's a little tiny unlock. We started sending people stickers stickers that said Streamlit, which was great because whenever you get a sticker that says Streamlit for some reason, like people tweet about it. And so they're like, oh, look at these awesome stickers I got. So then that starts to multiply out, right? Things like that, where we, the the notion that there was at the core of this project, a living thing that needed to be tended to every single day has been true from day one. It was never not true. And it was, we never thought of ourselves as a bunch of coders building a technology that other people would love or, you know, use or something like that. It was always, we were community builders, first and foremost, growing this community. And then we we showed that community love. Uh, and one of the ways that we showed them love was by hopefully building the features they wanted. <laughs> but other ways that we showed them love was by giving them great forums and interacting with them on those forums retweeting them when they tweeted about us and sending them stickers and replying to emails. Uh, And of course, as Streamlit grew, we have tens of thousands of active developers and, you know, Streamlit apps are going to be viewed over a million times this quarter. We're also actively in use in over half the Fortune 50. We're in use in all but two countries in the world. So it's, it's, it's gotten to a completely different scale from, oh, let's respond to every email that comes in. You know, I actually kind of pains me the extent to which we can't do that anymore in some ways. At every 10x of the community, you have to sort of reinvent from scratch how you interact with them. And so there's been a number of those, I mean, several of those orders of magnitudes of, of growth in our uh, relationship with the community now. And so it's, it's actually quite a different thing 
uh, than it was when I started. Awesome. And I'd love to talk a bit about how you thought about coming up with a good monetization strategy that worked for the community, especially figuring out, okay, early on, what features were you going to give them versus hold until you actually knew what made sense to actually pay for what your general thesis or strategy would be around business model? So what we're doing is something that a lot of companies have done now at this point, which is sell a managed version of streaming. So this is something that Mongo has done successfully, Confluent, HashiCorp. It's this sort of modern way to monetize, actually DBT is a sort of modern way to monetize open source projects these days. So if that works, uh, it's really, really great because you have this advantage against everyone who's just trying to sell a pure managed SaaS service, which is that you get this, you know, if the open source is working, you have this vastly larger community of people that you can basically sell the SaaS service to than you would if you were just trying to sell one company at a time in a sort of traditional VC-backed approach. That's really, really neat. Then, of course, yeah, the question becomes, what is open source and what gets held back? I wouldn't look at it as, what do you give? What do you hold back? Because that, even there, it sounds like we're playing a kind of game with the community. What you really want to do is have a very clear thesis of what is in the open source project and what is in the paid project, first of all. You want to communicate that really clearly to the community so that they feel like, yes, I get it. This is what this open source project is. This is what this paid project is. And then ideally, if you're doing this SaaS selling the managed version of your open source product approach, the features that people are paying for are features that only make sense in the managed version of a service. So to give you an example, if you download and install Streamlit on your laptop, you get an awesome framework for making apps. It's not going to be very easy to share them. You're going to have to do a whole bunch of crazy Docker stuff, but you can do it on your laptop if you want. If you do it through Streamlit Cloud, not only do you get one-click ability to deploy these Streamlit apps, lock them down, but you also get vertically integrated identity so that, well, actually, we're coming out with this quarter, vertically integrated identity so that you can um, see who's using, or rather, add logic to your app so that it reflects who's using it. You can also see how many people are using it. And, and who's using it. So these are all technologies that uniquely make sense in the managed version of Streamlit. And so it doesn't take anything away from the community. It just means that you get even more of the right features when you want to use the managed version. And is that is that where you started or did you iterate on different potential business models early on and do some user research? And for other founders listening to this, what's a good process for really figuring out what works for your community? I think that it is it is really good to always have like a definite theory <laughs> and run towards that theory as hard as possible. It has always been our theory that there would be a managed version of Streamlit and that people would pay for it and that we would take it upon ourselves to make that managed version of Streamlit the best version. Like we welcome competition with anyone who wants to self-deploy Streamlit on any platform because we don't want to win by, by cutting down the options of our users. We want to win by increasing the value of Streamlit to them if they use the managed version. So that's another reason why we never, it was never about how do we hold things back and push things forward and stuff. It was, here's this awesome product. As the people who made that awesome product, we know how to make uniquely the awesome managed version of that product and, and sell it. And that's always been the theory. When it comes to the actual features that people want, 
there's there's nothing that you can that compares to listening to your customers. And it's also just super exciting for the, you know, at this point, the product managers and the engineers and everyone working on Streamlit to get feedback about, oh, this is something that we need and that's something that we need. And so, you know, once you start to find your niche in the world, there is a way in which the feature development and the product discovery starts to take on a life of its own. And you obviously you have to, you know, you don't build everything that everyone wants. First of all, that'd be impossible. And second of all, there needs to be a, a sense of direction. But I find it very, even as, you know, one of the people who who came up with the vision, as it were, I find it extremely fun and exciting to see the crazy things that users ask for that we had no idea that they wanted. And to sort of watch Streamlit fall into its proper evolutionary you know, niche in the ecosystem of data tools as they're emerging. So I think what would be great to talk about, because you mentioned a pretty good example of how you listened, I assume, to your mm-hmm. users, mm-hmm. where you switched from like a data visualization to mm-hmm. a data application. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of founders actually don't understand how to listen to their customers and users, especially when it comes to like a bottom-up adoption. Maybe talk about what made you do that switch, right? Yeah. From a visualization to application. And even what does that even mean? Because <laughs> application yeah, 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 is actually yeah, yeah. Quite, quite broad and abstract. Yeah, right? for so, sure, so what, for sure. Maybe tell, me, tell us more about that particular transition. Totally. And how do you learn continuously able to, hey, what is the next yeah. transitions or changes yeah. we should make yeah, yeah, from yeah. a user point of view? Yeah. Well, the first thing I'll say is that we still struggle to learn from our users. Every time you add more people to the company or add more customers or add more users or things just change, you have to relearn from scratch how to do it. So I'm hesitant to say, oh, this is how you do it. This is the secret. I'll tell you our story. But one thing that's really very much affected me emotionally, as a startup founder, you feel like you're doing everything wrong all the time and you haven't figured it out. It's just sort of a continuous, like the mountain just keeps getting bigger no matter how high you climb. And as I've been able to build relationships with you know, CEOs of really big companies and, and, and understand their challenges and stuff, it's remarkable how it's just my challenges just fractally grown. So you know, we figured it out once in the case of Streamlit to a certain extent, and it was successful, but we're still figuring it out. And, uh, and that's, that's, the real, that's the real truth. But I'll tell you about what happened. So we had this visualization tool and it had the property that it was super, super fun to code in. <laughs> it, and it was just like a really fun project. What happens is you could, you could change your Python code and it would sort of automatically update and you could see visualizations of what you were working on. And that was really cool. It really was. But we hadn't found that really resonant niche yet. And it wasn't the numbers thing because we were way too few. I mean, we had like like less than 50 users or something, right? So it was like, it was a feeling thing. We just knew that we hadn't reached the resonant thing. So we had tons of time on our hands. And so we needed to figure out what was the sort of big next step. So we thought it was this live coding visualization tool plus X. What is X, right? And I think, by the way, part of the reason why we could take this approach is because Streamlit in some ways was a kind of a broad project. Had we started with something extremely narrow, which also has its values, it maybe would have been instead of X or, or, or X instead of what we were doing. But this was really what we were doing plus X. And there was a couple of plus Xs that we were considering. Um, so we thought, what if it was a visualization tool with really awesome live streaming abilities? Or what if it was a visualization tool, you know, like a streaming dashboard? Or what if it was a visualization tool 
that you could really easily hook up to your data pipelines and see what was going on. So, you know, there's there's lots and lots of pieces of the data science stack where a little bit of extra visualization would probably go a long way. So we, we thought about all those ideas. And then one of them was, what if it's a visualization tool that lets you play live with the visualization, which is an app, basically. And so what we did was we created a basically a slide deck of each one of those products. You know, we made mock-ups and we, we talked about what is similar, what is different. And then we went to every one of our users that would listen to us and talk to us. And we had like a two and a half hour conversation with them being like, what do you think of this? What do you think of that feature? What would you, you know, what would you like this or that? And we compiled this massive, massive spreadsheet. I mean, massive in the sense that it was made by hand. It wasn't like, you know, big data, but massive for us spreadsheet of all these features, how much people like it and so on and so forth. And we are missing an app framework in this space really, really jumped out. There's someone, actually, do you know Louis Von Ahn? He's a professor at Carnegie Mellon also. And we, we overlapped because I was a professor at Carnegie Mellon. He created uh, CAPTCHAs and now he created Duolingo. He gave me some pretty terrifying advice, which is anything worth doing should have three good reasons why you want to do it. <laughs> if there's just two good reasons, it's probably not a good idea. Of course, you have to be a mega genius like him and have so many ideas that you could even apply that. But I think in the case of Streamlit, we kind of had that. First of all, because we'd started off as a visualization and sort of, you know, developer tool, it was grounded in this super fun developer experience that I think has always stayed with the project. Second of all, we could point to a bunch of users who were like, this is what I want. So we knew that there was like a little bit of market pull. And third of all, the more we thought about it, the more we were like, oh, this would have been awesome in our previous jobs had we had it. So we could start to really draw upon actually years of experience working in ML to, to say this is a really good thing to do. So it really felt like, you know, there were multiple sources of information coming together telling us like, this is awesome. It's amazing how much user research was done. I think one of the common themes that's come out of a lot of these interviews that we've done is the founders who are super in touch with their community and know the user profile very, very well are able to just like figure out the right way to build a business so much better. From an early hiring standpoint, what were the key hires you made early on? And also just maybe some of the mistakes that you made on hiring that would be good for others to learn from? Yeah. So I mentioned this earlier in the podcast. One thing that we did early on was we hired this guy, TC Ricks, who's just utterly the most wonderful human being. And I, I shouldn't say his name on this podcast, but everyone's going to try and hire him away. But he was our head of community at the time. And he was really more responsible than anyone else for basically this perspective, which is that the community is something that you live day in and day out and that you tend to and that you love at all times. And so I think the, the notion that for an open source company like us, that the community was a core part of the project from the very, very beginning. And it was, you know, it was as important as sales. It was as important as tech. It was as important as everything. And it still is, actually. That was a really, really crucial initial hire. It's been a while <laughs> since the, the early days of Streamlit. I mean, we always had a lot of engineers and we've always been a very like engineering first culture. I mean, I was a computer science professor, the co-founders, we all came from Google. And I think that that has proved to be a really valuable flywheel for us because it's meant that, you know, people like to join startups that have great people in them and that, and that sort of, you know, share their strengths. 
So whatever the strengths are of the initial organization are going to be carried out and, and sort of multiplied incredibly. So we, we had always strong engineering. And then the other thing that I know this sounds really cliche, but it was a commitment to diversity. <laughs> it's really true. Streamlit is much more, it's not as diverse as I'd like it to be in some ways, but like in terms of gender diversity, for example, it's way, way, way more diverse than most engineering focused tech startups. And that just changes the atmosphere a little bit. At a certain point, you get this like a little bit of a flywheel. People feel welcome and so they're willing to join. And then the next people feel welcome. And it's a real thing. That's awesome. Yeah, it's something that is really hard to bake in later. Because if you have a team of 30 people that look the same, you can't then add someone in because they're not going to want to be the one other. Yeah, I'll say one more thing about about hiring, actually. Because it, it happened, it wasn't part of the initial like five hires. But it happened a little bit later on, and it was so powerful. So this is a true story. We're mid-pandemic, or the pandemic seems to be receding. Omicron hadn't come back. We're like, this is our moment. Strike while the iron's hot. Get the company together. So we go to this beautiful, beautiful ranch in Colorado. We invite everyone. We spend like a whole week together. And it was one of the highlights of my life. And the reason is because I couldn't believe how good the people were at Streamlit. Like literally it was a delight to be around them. And it was just like, oh, here you are in 3D, way taller than I thought, because it turns out everyone at Streamlit is like literally six inches taller than I thought, which I don't know what that's a reflection about. Also, really cool to meet you. And also, what a cool life you have and what cool things you do outside of work and what an interesting person you are and how happy I am to just meet you as a human being. And so all of a sudden, I think the entire company just started to suddenly feel like, wow, there's so many good people here. It's just a great environment. How did we do this? And what I realized was this. We publish our values. It's a funny thing, but we really said, this is what we stand for. And we wrote it down. And the employees super took it to heart and especially in hiring. And that led to, you know, I talked to one of our most like crotchety employees and I asked him like, what do you do when you hire new people? And he's like, oh, I look for kindness in new employees because that's like one of our, that's our value number one, basically. That also creates this like flywheel of attracting the right kind of people that it just, the net effect of that happening over and over again is like amazing. And I, I could not possibly have predicted that. So, yeah. We talked about learnings and it's fun to talk to a lot of people, especially coming from a strong academic background, jumping to <laughs> as a founder. Everybody has very, very different either expectation of what a startup life is or has different sort of lens they bring, right? Uh, from mm-hmm. what they learned in the past to, to a startup. What did you have to unlearn and learn really quickly when you jumped from, I know you went to Google and you worked at different places, but it sounded like your vast majority of your experience wasn't academic. Yeah. yeah. I guess we'll be curious to see like, what was you think was actually quite hard to unlearn <laughs> from that experience or, or, yeah. or not? Yeah. Yeah. Or not. I mean, academia, especially, you know, master's PhD level academia is really about exploring your own ideas. And a lot of the value prop to the practitioner, aka the professor, is to really attach your name to this idea and to get first author and to get more citations. And I think that that's a really good thing in academia because 
if you're, and I'm talking right now about sort of scientific research academia, because it's incentivizing. <laughs> you're not making any money, so you might as well get famous. But also, it's a very healthy way to develop really crazy two ideas, basically, which is kind of the point. A very interesting aspects of startups and, and business, I would say, that's quite different is the degree of selflessness in a way that's required. You really want to make it as little about you as possible, that it's almost an absurdity. Like we're not exploring my mind when we create Streamlit. My mind is like irrelevant. <laughs> there are tens of thousands of people using it and millions of people seeing Streamlit apps around the world and giant, giant Fortune 50 companies using it in part of their operations. That network of Intel, and then there's people writing Streamlit components and there's people writing blog posts about Streamlit. And there was a data scientist at Facebook who wrote a book about Streamlit. All of these things together, add them all up or perhaps even multiply them together, which is more accurate. The contribution of any one mind is nothing to that. So if I were to substitute my own thinking for that of the community or say, this is my project or this is where it needs to go, that would be like absurd basically. That is a really big difference in perspective that I think is, is actually incredibly fun. And it's one of the most sort of like invigorating aspects of building a startup. And really, it's not just a startup, it's building things out in the world with lots of users. This might be a little jumping around because I feel like yeah. there's, there are string of questions that actually are related, but maybe not completely in the same area. But one part of the learnings I think most founders have to go through is first, of course, in your case, getting to get the community right. They need to actually understand the product or project. Word of mouth going and, and grow sort of usage, know how to actually continue to expand. You definitely touched on the Fortune 50, the hundreds, right? It was a totally different beast for most people because most founders, especially coming from, you know, stronger technical plus academic background, don't understand how these people work. What did you learn engaging with the Fortune hundreds of the world? Did they just pick it up just like everybody else? and require no other attention, and they just keep using it successfully, and we treat everyone the same? Or did you have to quickly learn, okay, we have to treat them in a special category somehow? And yeah, yeah. what did you learn in that, in this yeah. journey? I'll give you the answer that, that you're probably not looking for, which is that in many ways, they did just pick it up and use it not so differently from everyone else. So an interesting question is why? Because you're totally right that if you were to open up a Fortune 50 company and ask what their tech stack is, much less what their big technical problems are. It looks totally different from a, you know, an IC or somebody who's coding fun projects and putting them up on GitHub and sharing them with other people. So how could it possibly be that the same project could appeal to both? You know, we do have the Fortune, over half the Fortune 50 using streaming, but we also have college classes being taught using Streamlit and the people putting Streamlit on their resumes is, is you know, going up and up. And so there's all this kind of cool stuff on both ends of the spectrum. So how can you make sense of that? Well, first of all, it is a property of open source projects that they tend to, especially the successful ones, that they tend to have these multiple sort of orders of magnitude of impact. They make sense at multiple octaves. And an example is Git. I remember learning about Git when I was in grad school. People were like, Git, this thing is awesome. We got to use it for all of our source code. And I was like, what, is, what even is this thing, you know? And of course, now companies run massive, hyper-secure source codes on Git, be it through Azure DevOps, through GitHub, through GitLab, but still the same underlying open source technology spans, you know, these octaves of influence. 
So that's one thing. Another thing is that we were very lucky that the machine learning and data science worlds were not yet completely ossified and crystallized into you, you know, it only makes sense to use these giant companies software. And this is something that we didn't really appreciate, but you know, it would have been a completely different business strategy had we been trying to make like a search engine to compete with Google, for example. But we were naturally drawn to this field, which had a lot of individual practitioners, had people moving from academia into big companies, and they were used to that style of development. And so I think we were in fertile ground for an open source project to succeed. And then the final note is, even though the open source project has succeeded at all of these levels, the commercial project is much more narrowly targeted. So our commercial project is basically targeted at mid-market companies and, you know, adventuresome large companies. And there are certain security requirements and also technical requirements that companies can have that we just can't support yet. But nevertheless, we're excited to bring this product to market. And we know that we're building on top of this layer of sort of massive open source support across all these different sizes of companies. And so... That's one of the reasons why we're just so excited to, to build the business. So we love to end on pieces of advice for other open source founders, but maybe before that, it would be great to hear your perspective on what's the hardest part about building an open source based company. I think building an open source company, probably the hardest part is that if open source is going to be more than just a tagline, any company can say, oh, we open source this or that. But is that really what the company is based on? Or is it just a cool addendum to the company? Streamlit is really an open source company. It's really a product-led growth company. If anything, we are so open source and so product-led growth that it's also our Achilles heel in some ways. So if you're talking about that real product-led growth, community-driven, word-of-mouth open source company, probably the hardest thing is building that initial momentum. Because... Uh, that nothing else can substitute for it. You know, we I, I feel like we could take our foot off the gas for quite some time and just still see Streamlit growing because it's kind of inexorable. And that's something that, in retrospect, it was so risky <laughs> to base the business on the idea that that would work out. And we're so fortunate that it has. That I, I think is, would certainly be the hardest thing. So let's end on what are advice is going to give people that are maybe have open source project, want to start a companies, and now you went through a journey. What are the biggest advices you're going to give to these founders? It's very hard to answer that question in general for an open source project because there's so many different pathologies that a company can have and so many things that can go wrong. Um, it's like, let's go down the checklist. But I would say that if you're an open source developer, you certainly have one thing right, which is unbelievably valuable, which is a passion for this artifact that you've created. As trivial as that may seem, when you're looking at this from the perspective of a sea of open source projects that everyone is passionate about their own little open source project and they all want to code on their own thing. It doesn't seem very special to love your project as much as you do. But once you transcend through the layers into this is a business and this is starting to work, all of a sudden, the fact that this was your open source baby and that you have this connection to it is 
so unbelievably valuable and rare and puts you in such a unique class of entrepreneurs that I think that that's really an amazing thing. So I think that if you have an open source project that you're learning to build a business on, that's a great, great place to be. You're probably developing a ton of weapons in your arsenal that you don't even realize yet that are going to be incredibly valuable as time goes on. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this with us. 